Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Good to be back. We did have a wonderful conference, and thank you for allowing the Free Grace Alliance to have a regional conference here, and I hope that uh, you enjoyed your exposure to the Free Grace Alliance and what, how the Grace Mess is going out around the world and what we're trying to do, and um, it's all about grace, and the world has really messed up that concept, and we're just trying to keep that clear. So we thank you for hosting that. Thank you for coming to it. I know some of you couldn't make it, and uh, um, I hope maybe you can make some of the things today. And that reminds me, uh, some very gracious brother, I'm not going to mention his name, then he loses reward. Some very gracious brother bought one of the books from my book table, and he said, I want you to give this to someone. I said, who? I said, he said, you choose. Okay, well, you know what? Can you, can you help me, Charlie? Uh, give this to Johnny and Whitney Hancock. There you go. Because they weren't able to come to the conference. They had to watch their grandchildren. That's the only legitimate excuse. I'm going to be in Romans chapter 11 mostly, but it's going to take me a while to get there. So we're actually going to go through the whole book of Romans today. We're going to talk about being moved by grace, motivated by grace. Basically answer the question, why be good? You see, grace says that we are forgiven all of our sins, that our salvation is eternally secure, that we can never lose our salvation, that where sin abounded, grace abounded even more, Romans 5.20. And some people would say, well, if God has forgiven all of my sins, past, present, and future, I can never lose my salvation, I can do whatever I want. We're often accused of preaching that message. But that's not what we find in reality when people discover grace. Why be good if our future is covered and we're free and we're under no condemnation? It all has to do with our motivation. And you know what the greatest motivator in the world is? Think about this. The greatest motivator, in my opinion, is love. Think about all the songs that are written about love, all the television shows that are about love, all the movies that are about love. We marry out of love. We're obsessed with love because love is such a wonderful thing. And it's a great motivator. People will move mountains because of love. You know, I think it was uh, at Fort Shelby here in Mississippi, there was a soldier, and he was uh, under training uh, and he had been grunting and humping all week, and man, he was tired, and he, want, he had a girlfriend in Chicago he wanted to see. He was going to propose to her, and he was madly in love with her. And he's packed his bags, and he starts walking towards the gate of the fort, and the loudspeaker goes off, fort is on lockdown, fort is on lockdown, nobody comes in, nobody gets out. He looks around for a second, he keeps walking towards the gate. And the guards see him coming, and they say, Hey, sorry, fort's, fort's locked down. He can't get out. He keeps coming. Soldier, the fort is locked down. He starts running towards him. You, you keep running, we're going to shoot. He says, look, my mama's in heaven, my papa's in hell, my girlfriend's in Chicago, and I'm going to see one of them today. 
motivated by love. I thought we were talking about grace. Well, how would we know the love of God apart from the grace of God? You know that song, at, it's an old hymn at Calvary? It says, oh, the grace that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the love that brought it down to man. You see, God could love us with all of his heart and with, for all of eternity, but we would never know that unless by his grace, his son would take on a body of flesh and come and do something we could never do, pay the price for our sins. So love is not really a theological word, but grace is both a theological word and a practical word. Grace is a free gift of God, and he's called the God of all grace. He's usually called the God of love more often than the God of grace. But it's grace that brings that love down to man, and it's the greatest motivator for the Christian life, the greatest motivator to be good. Well, I want to just kind of review for you the book of Romans, but I want you to think of it more, instead of as a book, as, as a mountain. We're going to so get on your hiking shoes. We're going to go climb the mountain of grace, okay, called the book of Romans. Because the book of Romans uses the word grace more than any other New Testament book, 28 times. It's really a wonderful book of grace. So it starts, of course, way down in the depths of sin in chapter 1, uh, talking about the sinfulness of man in chapter 2 and chapter 3, if you know anything about the book of Romans. And he concludes chapter in the middle of chapter 3 by saying, you know, everybody um, is guilty before God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Every, every mouth is stopped and guilty before God. That's the bad news of Romans. But you have to sometimes have a black background for the brilliance of the diamond to show up. And so after laying that back, black background, the Apostle Paul then says in chapter 3, verse 21, but now, but now the righteousness of God has appeared. Now grace is appearing. And he goes on to say that Grace saves us when we cannot save ourselves. We are justified freely by his grace, chapter 3 and verse 24. So he talks about our justification, which means that we are declared righteous before God. Not that he makes us, and be, but we become righteous in our outward conduct automatically, but in the eyes, and it's a legal word, in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of God's divine justice, we are declared righteous. There's no condemnation that we face. Who can bring a charge against us, he asks later. It, pay, it pays a price we cannot pay because the rest of that verse says through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Jesus came and he paid the price for our justification. He, re, he removed that penalty of sin and he removed, therefore, the enmity that we have with God. And so Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, therefore, now we have peace with God. It doesn't mean peace in our heart. It means that we're not at war with him anymore. He's not, his wrath isn't being poured out on us chapter 1, verse 18 says, no longer. Now there's peace has been declared because the enmity, the problem has been removed by Jesus Christ, chapter 5, verse 1. And then in verse 2 says, guess what? We have access to his grace through faith. So we just keep climbing this wonderful mountain of grace and all these wonderful discoveries about what God has done for us. He gives us a sure hope, he goes on to say in chapter 5. Even in the midst of trials and difficulties, we can have joy and he reverses Adam's condemnation. Chapter 5, verse 12, you know, says that one, death came through one man, and we're all guilty in Adam, and yet he's made us all alive 
and righteous through Jesus Christ. We keep climbing that mountain of grace. He gives us grace greater than all of our sin. Chapter 5, verse 20 uh, says, where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. And that's where some people will say, well, wait a minute. You, and what that verse is saying is that, that you can't out God's grace. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. God's grace is always one step ahead of us. So some people would say, so I can do anything I want? And Paul answers that and says, no. You see, some people say grace could move us to license. License meaning that we can do anything that we want, live a licentious life. Jude 4 tells us that there are people who teach that and practice that. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So there are some people who abuse the grace of God and use it as an excuse to sin. We're, we're often accused of preaching that kind of message. But you know what? Uh, what one preacher said, Martin Lord-Jones says, if nobody's accusing you of preaching license, you're probably not preaching the gospel of grace. That's just what happens when we preach grace. People accuse us of license, but it's, it's proof that we understand what grace is and we've got it right. But the answer to that, you see, Paul doesn't let that excuse get away. He answers that question. Oh, we're sin about a grace about a much more. Okay, I can do whatever I want to. Uh, and he himself raises the objection so he can answer it in chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If grace is a good thing, then let's sin and bring some more grace. And then in chapter 15, it's phrased a little differently. What then shall we sin because we're not under the law, the old Jewish system of, and code of a conduct, but under grace? What shall we say? Can we sin now because we're free from the law? His answer to both is very strong, double negative in the original language. Certainly not. Why not? Well, because um, liberty is not licensed. We have a new master, he goes on to say in chapter 6. Jesus is our master now. We have a new um, master. We have a new identity. We have a new power, the Holy Spirit. We have a new direction. And if we choose to sin, there are consequences of sin. He reminds us at the end of chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. My friends, that's written to Christians. I think you can use it in evangelism. It was written to Christians in the context. Who wants to discover a new life and then go back to live in the shadows of their old life. Who wants to discover prime rib and go back and eat roadkill? To live in deadness. Well, that's the consequences of those who choose to sin. I had a friend, and even a leader in my church at one time, and he uh, kind of got wrong, wrong sideways morally, and he ended up in jail. He's definitely a Christian. Me a letter, he said, Charlie, this is worse than death. God doesn't let his children run wild. There are consequences of sin. When we sin, we hurt ourselves, we hurt God, we hurt other people. But grace teaches us godliness. Titus 2, 11 through 12 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. You see, it's not automatic. Grace comes first, and then it teaches us. 
and it teaches us and motivates us at the same time. And you notice it here, it's a process. The word teach here is actually where we get the word pedagogy from. It has the idea of instructing and training and bringing up. So grace begins to train and instruct us in how to live a righteous life. We don't live a righteous life so that we can be saved. We live a righteous life after we're saved as grace begins to train us and teach us to live a godly life in this present age. So to prevent license, we who believe in free grace, we teach that there is a responsibility that we have. We have a responsibility to keep the law of Christ. We're not under the Old Testament Jewish law, but we are under the law of Christ. And what's the law of Christ? Love God with all your heart and love one another. And the scriptures say, uh, Galatians 5, you do that and you fulfill the law. Because if I love God, what am I going to do against him? And if I love you, what am I going to do against you? So really, Jesus himself taught that if you keep those two commandments, which are really the same, you fulfill the law and the prophets. So we teach responsibility. We teach accountability, too. As I said, God doesn't let his children run wild. He does discipline those who might go astray, like maybe put you in jail. If not in this life, then in the judgment seat of Christ, where it teaches us in Romans um, 14.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.10, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account of how we lived our lives for the things that we've done that are good, for the things that we've done are bad. We will give an account before him. And there we will be perhaps rewarded as with gold, silver, precious stones from 1 Corinthians 3, we learn. Or those works that we did, even look, they, they, they may have looked good on the outside, we did them with improper motives or attitudes, and they'll just be burned up. You'll make it to heaven, but your eyebrows will be singed, and you'll smell like smoke, secondhand smoke in heaven. But you made it. There are consequences in, in eternity at the judgment seat of Christ and in this life as well. Who knows what those can be, but Hebrews chapter 12 teaches us that just as a father loves his children and disciplines them, so God loves us and disciplines us. It could be because he brings some circumstances into your life to kind of get your attention, knock you over the head. Somebody asked me one time, said, well, you know, bad things do happen to good people not necessarily God's discipline. Somebody's asked me, they said, well, how do you know that God's disciplining you or it's just something bad that happened? I said, you'll just know. You'll know. I don't think God would discipline anyone without letting them know what, that he's up to something to help you. And the purpose of discipline is not to punish, but to train and to help us to be more holy. So there are rewards that can be won or lost in this life or the next life. So the idea of grace as we climb this, this mountain in the book of Romans is not a life of irresponsibility. It's a life of responsibility and accountability. And it comes with rewards or the loss of rewards. And as we continue to climb, having rested on that little plateau for a while, as we continue to climb, we go into chapter 7 and we see that God loves us so much that he gives us victory over our sin. It doesn't appear in the chapter until the very end where he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who can free, free me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God. 
through Jesus Christ. That's the key to victory over sin. He talks about that struggle when he depends on the flesh. He can't really, he wants to do what's right and he can't do what's right, but it's Jesus Christ that gives that victory. He goes on to explain in chapter 8, he does that by giving us the Holy Spirit and new power, and then he makes us his sons. We're not, we're not slaves any longer. He's freed us from that bondage so that we can call him Abba Father, and we don't have to be afraid of him anymore. Uh, he gives us security. One of the strongest chapters in the Bible on our eternal security is in Romans chapter 8. Who can bring a charge against us? If God is justified, who can condemn us? And he goes on and on. If God is for us, who can be against us? All out of order, but that's what he says. And he loves us unconditionally. At the end of uh, chapter 8, who can separate us from the love of God, he says. And he goes on to talk about life or death or things uh, present and things to come. Nothing in the future can happen to us that will separate us from the love of God. What a comforting thought that is. What a guarantee of our eternal future that is. We continue to climb the mountain of grace. We come to chapters 9 through 11, very intimidating chapters for some people because he really kind of gets deep theologically here. But Paul's writing away, and he's, gonna, he's, he's taking us from sin now. He's taking us to, through salvation, eternal salvation. Now he's taking us through sanctification. Now he's taking us into security. And now he wants to take us and talk to us about God's sovereignty. God has a plan that is greater than us, and it also is all according to grace. God has, in his sovereignty, chosen to bless a people, Israel. And he's chosen also, through Israel's rejection, to bless us who are Gentiles, non-Jews, by grafting us into the promises of God, the salvation that he provides. And so Jesus is the Messiah, not just for the Jews, but for us who are Gentiles as well. And Gentiles are included in his promise, and God uses disobedience for his glory. And that's the mind-boggling, amazing aspect of his grace that Paul is writing about in Romans chapter 11, that God would use Israel, who has rejected God, at the end of the book of Acts, you see that God, Paul says, God has also rejected you. The fact that God would even choose the Jews is a puzzle and a mystery and a conundrum. Why would God choose the Jews? I got an answer to that. Because God chose the Jews. <laughs> because he's sovereign, he doesn't have to explain why. Can the potter say to the one who made it, why did you make me like this? The argument that comes out in those chapters. Why did he choose the Jews? Because he decided to. But they're rebellious. Their whole history, they rejected him. They killed the prophets. They killed his son. The most terrible things came from choosing the Jews. But God in his infinite wisdom uses that, uses that for his glory. And that's where we're coming to now at the end of Romans chapter 11 and verse 33 through 36. What we've done is we've just climbed 
a mountain of theology of grace. And now we are at the peak of that mountain. All right, you with me? And you're looking out over the landscape from your beautiful vantage point. And what do you see? What do you say? What does Paul say? Let's look what he says. Oh. Oh. You know what the Greek word means? Oh. Grace has left Paul speechless. He has stopped his theology and begun his doxology. Doxology, theology means words about theology, God. Doxology means words of praise that glorify God. So this statement we're looking at at the end of chapter 11 is really, it's not a theological statement. It's a doxological statement. They're words of praise. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of God, of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Of course, rhetorical questions. Nobody can do that. Or who has first given to him and shall be repaid to him for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Well, let's unpack that a little bit and see what he's talking about. First of all, Romans chapters 9 through 11, talking about the sovereignty of God, is talking about, first of all, in chapter 9, Israel's past and how they have rejected God and his righteousness. And that's why God had to reject them. And then, in, at the end of chapter 9 into chapter 10, Israel's present rejection of God's righteousness. You know, and Paul's saying, I, I just, I pray for my people. Uh, he's praying for them who have rejected God's righteousness and tried to obtain it by their own works. And then he comes to chapter 11, and he talks about Israel's future, that God will restore them in his divine and sovereign purpose and then he praises God for that plan that God has designed the plan in graphic form goes like this Israel has rejected God and because God and therefore God has rejected them and because of the rejection of Israel uh, the doors have been flung wide open for us Gentiles to come in and when us Gentiles come in it provokes Israel to jealousy and gets their attention, and one day Israel will be saved, according to 11.26. Where does that leave us? When we understand the grace of God, when we stand on that mountaintop, and we survey what God has done in human history, and even taken something as black as sin, and as dark as the rejection of his own people, and the death of his son, where does that leave us? It should cause us to worship. Grace should move us to worship. And that's why these words are words of worship. Don't disparage good worship. I say good worship because <laughs> I've, I've seen some poor worship. But don't disparage good worship. I remember when I was pastor, somebody called up one time and they said, uh, yeah, we're just looking around for churches. And I, we just wanted to know, um, 
do you, do you, you teach the Bible? Yeah, well, you do all the singing and things like that? I said, yeah, we do that too. Well, we're looking for a church that just teaches the Bible. <laughs> I said, well, you know, we teach the Bible and we sing and worship because we understand what the Bible says. Don't disparage the worship that comes along. What's the biggest book in the Bible? The book of Psalms, right? What is the book of Psalms? It's mostly praises to God, right? For example, let's look at Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Words of praise, doxology. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, David says. And forget not all his benefits. Oh, wait a minute, David, what's getting you so excited about blessing God and worshiping like that? What are you talking about? What are you thinking of? Well, who forgives our iniquities, who heals our diseases, who redeems our life from the pit, who crowns us, I think, with righteousness, glory. I forget how exactly it goes. Who satisfies us. And he goes on and lists the blessings of God. When we understand the things that God has blessed us with by his grace, it should move us to worship. It should also move us to serve. Two responses to grace. We worship and we serve. Now, I want you to notice something. After Romans chapter 11 comes Romans chapter 12. That may be the most profound thing I say today. I'm serious. Paul has written for 11 chapters what the grace of God has done for us. He never tells us what we can do for him until chapter 12. And then he says, therefore, I beseech you, therefore, I urge you, therefore, the therefore, as good Bible students know, is explaining something. Brothers, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This is the reasonable thing to do, the lot thing to do when we understand what God has done for us what can we do for him he's gave given his son for us and he's blessed us with 11 chapters of grace what can we do for him we can give him our bodies why does he say bodies well first of all everything we are is in this body right I don't exist outside of this body that I know of so when I give him my body I give him my eyes what I see I give him my mind what I think about I give him my feet how fast I go down the highway on the accelerator Give my hands what I write or who I serve. Everything that I have is in this body, and he wants us to give it as a living sacrifice. I had in mind the Old Testament sacrifices, but sacrifices were always killed, so they were useful one time. But as a living sacrifice, God can continue to use us over and over again. So now he tells us what we can do in response to grace. We can serve God with who we are. It's a motivational model that we could learn from. In other words, tell people about God's grace before you tell them what they need to do. So many people have that backwards, and I see so many preachers' books and, and sermons and so forth where they get it backwards. And so Christianity becomes a religion of do, 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 do. Here's a list of things to be a good Christian. Go to church, read your Bible, pray, witness to people. Oh, and by the way, God loves you and you're saved by grace. No, Paul spends 11 chapters telling us how much God loves us and saves us by his grace and blesses us through his grace. And then he says, and here's what you can do. Not because you have to, but because if you understand grace, you want to. 
You see, grace changes Christianity from a, it's not a have-to religion, it's a want-to religion, if you want to call it a religion at all. It's actually a want-to relationship. You know, this pattern we see in the scriptures. When Paul writes to some of these churches, like in the books I've listed here, he's talking, he talks first about who we are and then how we should live, or the blessings of grace and then how we can respond to that, or what God has done and now what we can do for him. He uses that in Romans, as I've just shown you, but if you were to look at Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, you'll see the same pattern. The first chapters begin by telling how God has blessed us by his grace and then how we can therefore walk worthy according to his calling. That's how Ephesians pivots. How can we sacrificially serve? Well, that's the rest of the book of Romans, which we don't have time to go through. Be transformed in your mind. Think humbly uh, about yourself and about others. Use your spiritual gifts to serve others. Love other people. Give to the needy. Don't take vengeance. Be subject to governing authorities, and we can even pay our taxes to show how grateful we are to God. That's in Romans chapter 13. He goes on in chapter 14 to talk about accepting others over, over the color of your carpet when you differ. Accept differences in other people. Never teach grace without teaching responsibility and accountability. That's one thing I think the book of Romans shows us and our passage shows us. It's not a life of irresponsibility. It's not a life of license and sin. We are responsible to keep the law of Christ, to love one another and to love God with all our hearts. And God will hold us accountable for that by either in this life disciplining and rewarding us or in the next life, the loss of rewards or eternal rewards. And grace should move us to worship and service and serve God. It's not a perfunctory thing. But I hope these words that we've even said this morning just make you want to sing the next song a little bit louder. Teach grace. Preach grace. Thank you for being a church that does that and does it faithfully. When we understand that the grace brings us the love of God and establishes a relationship of love between us and God, that's the deepest motivation we could ever search for, hope for, and find for growing in the Christian life and being good. I was speaking in a church one time and sat down and had having lunch with the pastor, and we were just talking about family. And, yeah, my son's going to university, he said, and he's studying What's he studying? He's studying Hindi. Hindi? I've been to India many times. That's a tough language. I can't hardly get one or two words down. He's studying Hindi? Yeah, he met this Indian girl. Love's a powerful motivator. What would you think of a couple who gets married? On their wedding night, the husband says, well, we got married. We got that done. You mind now if I just kind of look around and check out other women and maybe, maybe flirt a little bit and kind of hang out with them. What do you think that wife would say? She'd be real biblical and say, certainly not. That man doesn't understand love. Love is a relationship. And the reward of obedience is the relationship. 
the magnificence of God's grace. Paul searches for words to find it. He has to lay down his pen and just worship God and praise him for his grace. Just recently, I came across a quote from, uh, I'll attribute it to R. Kent Hughes in his book, 1001 Great Stories. He writes about the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, where some of us went. And this is what he says about the founder, Lewis Berry Schaefer. It was a hot afternoon in Dallas, Texas, in May 1951. A class of graduating students were listening to Dallas Seminary's founder and president, Lewis Berry Schaefer, deliver what would be his last lecture on the subject of grace. If you knew Dr. Schaefer, he wrote a book called Grace, and he was big on grace, and Dallas Seminary has been big on grace traditionally. He had been teaching on the subject of grace for nearly 50 years. I remember personally sitting under men who sat under the feet of Schaefer. I heard them talk of the way Dr. Schaefer would lecture on the subject of grace, then wheel himself out of the classroom, by, by then confined to his wheelchair, and leave behind a classroom of men weeping in awe of grace. Well, on this day, he pulled out his handkerchief and wiped the perspiration from his face, it would be his last lecture on his favorite subject, the grace of God. He closed his eyes as they filled with tears, and his last words to them and to the rest of the world were, Gentlemen, for half of my life I've been teaching the grace of God, but I'm just beginning to understand it. And gentlemen, it is magnificent. It is magnificent. If your idea of Christianity is a list of rules, you've got it all wrong. If you're thinking, now that I'm forgiven, what can I get away with? You've got it all wrong. It's all about love, and it's all about the relationship that grace gives us with the loving God. It's not about trying to be good. It's about wanting to be good, to please the one who loves us. And if you're here today and you had a conception about Christianity that where this church what does this church expect to be how am I supposed to dress and how am I what Bible am I supposed to use and and uh, are they going to keep track of how often I attend that's not this church and that's not grace that's all externalism that's religion not relationship or if you have doubts about your salvation whether God has accepted you or not you don't know if you're you're good enough. Well, I've got news for you. You'll never be good enough. That's why Jesus had to come and die. And the Bible says, by grace, the free gift of God, the undeserved gift of God, you've been saved through faith. That means you bring nothing but an empty hand that receives that gift. You're convinced this promise is true. For by grace, you've been saved through faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Nobody's going to stand before God and say, hey, I did it. What an insult that would be to God who gave his son to die for us. And he died to save us totally, completely, and thoroughly, not to put us on probation. Now, if you have doubts about your salvation, whether you're here today or listening, you can settle that right now by putting your faith in Jesus Christ as the one who took your place on the cross, who lived the perfect life that you could never live. And as God, the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, he offered himself as an eternal sacrifice to cover the sins of the whole world. Propitiation, a big word, 
covered the sins of the whole world, including you. So that if you just receive the free gift that he promises, you will live forever with him and begin to experience the joys of his grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful grace of God. You've taken us on a whirlwind tour. But when we get to that mountaintop, we want to say, oh, what a view. What a view of what you've done. You use the darkness and the evil and the rejection of men to bring about a sovereign plan to save Israel, to save us, and to renew the world. We're in awe of your grace. Today, if there's anyone who is struggling with their, in their relationship with you, I pray that today you would give them the certainty that comes by trusting in Jesus Christ and what he has done for their salvation. May today be the day of salvation for them. I want to thank you for all that this church has done in setting up meetings and inviting us here and just being hospitable and preaching grace and showing it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.